Welcome to the Path to CPO, where we peel back the layers of success and delve into the journeys of the most dynamic chief people officers. I'm your host, Nelson Sibelingham, CEO and co-founder of How Now. Together, we'll explore the trials, the triumphs and insights of these trailblazers across people, culture and HR at some of the fastest growing companies in the world. This is not just their story, it's a roadmap for all aspiring people leaders. Tune in, rise up, and let's embark on this enlightening journey together. Anthony, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks, Nelson. Great to be here. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna take you down memory lane uh, to kick off with. I'm gonna ask you, you know, what was your first role in HR? Yeah, it's a great uh, wow memory lane. Uh, it's a long, long time ago during the dot com boom of the late '90s. Well. Before I get into that, I can talk about. So I I am an accountant actually by study, and I a, a failed accountant by practice. Um, so I really didn't like it, and I wasn't really good at it. So I got, actually got fired. My first job ever was an accountant role, and I got fired from it. And it it was a career pivot for me. And I went back to the recruiting firm, and I said, "Hey, I." I really don't like this accounting stuff. What can I really do? And they're like, well, you can go to finance. And that, of course, in New York at that time, finance was a big deal. Um, or you can you know, maybe come and recruit for us. And I said, I don't know what recruiting is all about. They're like, don't worry about it. You can talk about accounting. You're can, you can recruit. And I started my recruiting career uh, in at Robert Half uh, doing recruiting for accountants uh, and then expanded into that. But that's my my first taste into the HR space was uh, recruiting for Robert Half. How long into your first HR gig before you started to think, actually, you know what, I could build a career in HR. How long did that take? Well, it's interesting because Robert Half was a really good place to, you know, I almost called it a recruiting boot camp. I, I learned a lot of habits there, but um, but it wasn't the greatest uh, place from my perspective at the time to, to be doing recruiting. It was a great place to learn recruiting, uh, but I had an opportunity uh, in the next phase to work for an executive search firm um, and I pitched them. I, I saw this huge momentum that was ha- happening in these tech startups in New York uh, during the first dot-com push. And I said, there's an incredible opportunity for us to really grab onto market share here and do recruiting for these companies. And thank goodness, the you know, it's a small boutique search firm and the owner was like, listen, there's li- minimal risk for me to, to take this on. And I built a practice. So I knew like within the first, it was more of a, a, an, a recruiting kind of interest, but also just like tech and building startups. I, I really got bit by the startup bug by uh, by going into these young companies and, and helping them to recruit. And then eventually they needed HR. They, you know, they had no HR experience. I needed it. I. And so I started learning and reading up on HR and doing employee manuals and sort of just like kind of accidentally got into the HR space and started providing some consulting services as well as recruiting for these small little startups. And is that where the kind of you know, looking at your LinkedIn profile, you've been an advisor for the who's who of, of kind of startups. And is, is that where that kind of stems from is starting to work with startups, advising them on how to bring in early people practices? Absolutely. And well, it's interesting, the 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 career itself. So getting into that space started my career. And I like to say I got a Ph.D., 
in startup um, because none of what we've learned in the real world is ever going to be taught in a classroom. It's just like there's no for me, uh, my experience is there's there's just no level of like, you know, building a company, scaling a company, closing a company. You're, you're never going to learn that in a textbook. But the advisor roles that I'm doing right now are less about HR and recruiting and more about taking those experiences and helping those companies. You'll see in a lot of the advisory services they do, they're for HR, tech and services company. So I kind of jump on the business side uh, uh, within those companies and I help them with pricing on their product. I help them with actual product product marketing. I do all these really interesting things because I take all those experiences and all those HR systems that I put in place during my career and helping them go to market and really do... I do sales enablement, a whole bunch of different things. So it's on the advisor side, it's less about the HR and recruiting stuff for them, but more about their business needs and commercial needs. I'm now jumping around a bit, but I, I have to ask you something related to that. So that kind of convert commercial involvement right from everything from kind of product marketing to like you said pricing in itself yeah how has that helped you in your role as cpo well i think it, it expands sort of the business side of my brain and, and that's kind of and not to say that when i'm in hr i don't have that side but it's really experiencing a whole different view of how businesses operate so i can help consult Susie's own product and product marketing folks. But when I'm doing it, I understand what they're going through, what the challenges are. So I can, it gives me a greater sense of empathy for them, um, but also can help them and think about their businesses a lot better. Because I think I've always felt like the, the, the great HR folks tie the HR stuff to the business stuff, um, even if it's loosely tied. But, you know, if we can directly correlate these things even better. If I'm getting experiences where this this startup is asking me about product market fit, like we went through a pricing uh, scenario with one of the the startups I advised, and it was just fascinating to go through that stuff. And then when we're the executive team at Susie's talking about pricing, I can provide my point of view on that from the experience that I had on the other side. So it really gets me and puts tentacles into every part of our organization and. And oftentimes, like because I have an accounting background, I always surprise CFOs when I could read balance sheets and income statements. I'm always they always are very surprised that I'm able to 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 read those things. Same thing here. When I'm talking about pricing, people are like, "Why is the HR guy talking about pricing?" But they're like, "Oh, actually, that makes makes sense." And I tell them where the experience comes from. So it's been really incredibly helpful for me on the HR side. And at what point in the journey did you? I guess, had the ambition to want to become a CPO, right? Was, was it accidental landing there or was it quite deliberate and intentional that one day you you knew your trajectory was to get to this point? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I mean, I think all these roads are always somewhat accidental. Like uh, I forget there was a cartoonist that wrote sort of, there's just sort of no natural trajectory for certain things. There are certain roles that obviously have a natural progression, but I think most careers are accidental. The, my career in HR and recruiting is accidental. I, I went back to the recruiting firm at Robert Half and I said, you know, what can I do with this thing? I don't want to do accounting. So that part was accidental, but I always felt like, okay, how do I get into that CPO role? And I've had such incredible mentors at that level. Um, within my toolbox, within my personal and professional toolbox. 
Um, there was, you know, when I was at Fresh Direct, I was coming into an organization that had a big hourly workforce that I had not worked with before. And so I looked at folks in that space. So Artie Nathan was the, the head of HR for Wynn Resorts so in, in Vegas. So he built the Bellagio, right? So recruiting quickly and building this hourly workforce, Vinny Stabile, um, rest his soul, was the head of HR at JetBlue. Again, so I had these two mentors to help me with this. And I always knew like I wanted to be like them to a certain degree, being at that sort of CPO, the decision-making level. So I always knew I felt like I wanted to be there, but I also knew that I didn't have the right experiences or the right sort of um, mentorship until I had those folks uh, being able to mentor me and coach me. And one of the things I find you know, speaking to people who are people leaders, there's often this trying to find the right balance between being a generalist, but also having particular areas that you are specialist in. How, how do you balance the two? And I guess, how did you land on what your areas of specialism would be? Sure, sure. Yeah, I think it's hard, especially at the CPO level, because you're a remit. So I, I try to simplify and storytell on, on, on HR in this way. So I think of HR, the remit for HR is what I call find, keep and elevate, which is ironically the same uh, as the tagline in my book. It's recruiting, it's the people operations, you know, the keeping of the folks and then the elevating of, of folks, right? So you need to find them, you need to keep them and you need to elevate them. And obviously that is super high level and there's so many different pieces within that. I think you have to be a generalist. I think if you're going to be a CPO someday, you've had to fill out a benefits form or negotiated benefits for a company or done recruiting or built a learning and development. I don't think there's, unless you're in a very large company where you have the scale of all these different teams, I think in startups, it's hard not to be a generalist. You have to be. And I, that's my advice for folks. I think you have to dive into each one of these areas. And you have to be at least knowledgeable about it. it may not be the most passionate piece, but again, I feel like HR from a from a, a strategic perspective, there is the plumbing and the electricity of HR, which are your benefits, your payroll. They're not always the sexiest pieces, but I will tell you that if you go into your apartment this evening, try to you know, flip on the switch and the light doesn't go on, it's going to ruin your night. It's going to be like, what is going on? Why is it the bulb, the electricity? Like, but if you went the same day and just flipped it on and the light went on, you wouldn't even think twice about it, right? So those important fundamentals of HR, I think you have to get those right. And then you have to build the generalist. And then you could pick, okay, what is going to be sort of my point of view? You don't necessarily have to be a specialist in any way, but you have to be um, you have to have a point of view about certain things. Now there could be a broader point of view or it could be specific, right? Right now I've I've put my you know my hooks into this AI movement, right? So this for me, I see very clearly is going to fundamentally change HR in so many different ways. Um, so it's not necessarily so I'm trying to learn as much as possible. I'm watching TikToks, I'm getting all sort of AI newsletters. I'm I won't say I'm an expert in AI or data science by any means, and that's, you know, but I'm understanding the business aspects of it. And I think that's a key. It's not just being a specialist, but maybe identifying an area of innovation in HR and sort of putting your hooks on that and becoming sort of a thought leader around those kind of things. I guess just building on what you just said, Dan, how do you deal with, for example, the, the kind of scaremongering that surrounds anything innovation tech and especially around AI, right? How do you deal with 
there might be people genuinely uh, worried in the organization or people outside in your network about losing their job to, to AI. As a kind of HR professional, how do you think you can tackle this? How do you manage this and support people along that journey? Sure. I think it's becoming a historian of these things. I think that's an important doing. You know, there's a reaction that's always going to be the case, right? If you look at uh, neuroscience, our sort of inherent reaction to things is fight or flight. That's sort of how we're built. So anything, any kind of change, there's this fight or flight syndrome that we have or reaction to it, right? So think about that and, and empathize with the folks that that are within your organization and try to look at it. So you may have a position to say, listen, I think AI is is going to be a game changer for us. And I think it's a necessary part of what we're trying to do. But when, when it comes to your employees, I, and I always tell leaders, whenever they're communicating good or bad news, you have to think of it from the, from the, from the employee's perspective. Often companies will talk about like, it's great for the company. At the end of the day, that's great. And we want to send that message out. But you also, they, they don't give a crap about, they, they care about themselves. How is this going to impact me? And I think when you become a historian of these things and you look at the history of the workforce and automation, you'll find that there, there's a great image. Um, and I forget where it is, but it's an image of an old bowling alley. Years, I'm, I'm thinking it's a black and white. So it had to be in the, in the early 1900s. But before there was automation, we actually had human beings and sometimes children actually replacing the pins in a bowling alley. You haven't even thought about that. That hasn't even been a whisper, but that was a job at one point. Someone's job was to do that. Years ago, well, we're not too short distance and there's still some remnants of this. There were toll takers, uh, particularly in New York here. Now everything's automated. All these, so there's always going to be disruptions. I think what we need to figure out is one, one, be a historian. Like how has this, how has automation interrupted jobs and evolved jobs, right? There are now, while you don't, you no longer have the toll taker, you have the repair person for that automated toll device, right? So now that has created a job that didn't exist. Social media didn't exist. Now we have social media strategists. Chat GPT. If you don't say chat GPT once a day, the AI gods are not fulfilled. So I said chat GPT today. Good for you, AI gods. Um, but anyway, chat GPT has now created prompt engineers. The prompt engineer didn't exist six, seven months ago, right? But now that's all we're talking about. Now I heard... Um, I forgot what it was called, deep prompting or major prompting. So now this is the evolution of that. So I, I actually read and, and be a historian, but read up on these things and understand all positions, right? What's the positive? What's the negative? And come up with your own conclusion. There's a great book on this. It's called Race Against the Machines, written by Andrew McAfee and, and Eric. Um, I'm not even going to attempt his last name, but they're both MIT professors and what they did is they looked at the uh, Ken Jennings, IBM Watson from a year from years ago and said, OK, this is going to create panic. Who's going to win? Is it the humans? Is it the computers? And what they came at the end of their 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 book, their conclusion was it's not people or computers. There's going to be things that computers do better than people. There's going to be things that people do better than computers. It's the combination of those two. So my advice is. Be a historian, learn about these things, and don't put your head in the sand. Like these things are going, you know, there and there's there's a cliche out there now. It's like Jet, Ch Chat GPT or AI is not going to take your job. A person that uses Chat GPT and AI is going to take your job. And that's actually a pretty fair statement. It's, it's interesting because I was at an event um, not long ago and I met this person who is a voice actor. 
And it wasn't really a role that I'd really thought about until this lady said, actually, it's really difficult right now because AI is able to create a very human sounding voice now, which essentially makes voice actors quite redundant, right? If you can turn text to voice and it sounds quite natural. Um, and she goes, yeah, so I'm out here trying to promote, but I'm not too sure how long it's going to last. So there's definitely, you know, we're seeing those roles that will be affected. And I think what's been interesting is there's there's typically high skilled roles that we've always assumed won't be um, replaced, but actually they're the roles that are being replaced. Like, you know, for example, an engineer, I've seen it in my lifetime where, you know, everyone was being promoted to to go study coding, become an engineer. But actually now that's the first thing that AI is able to, to kind of at scale uh, quite do. So it's quite an interesting period of time. I'm just kind of building on from that. How do you see this impacting, for example, organizational design and the number of people you'd need to recruit? Because what's becoming quite apparent is, you know, where you may have needed five content writers before, actually now you just need one who's going to curate what AI is going to write. And probably the same for uh, coding and, and many other areas. Does this come in, come into play when you're thinking about okay, what does scaling this organization look like? Yeah, of course, it it definitely does. I mean, if you think about again, if you if you're a historian, historian, a historian, sorry, it's Monday. I apologize. Um, on these things, you look at it and say, okay, years ago, whether it was tech companies or enterprise companies they touted the fact that they uh, employed large sets of, of people, right? Like you, you look at the amount of revenue per employee of a Kodak or companies years ago, and it was very small. Now the proliferation of technology, cloud computing, now we can scale up in the lean startup methodology from, you know, from a bunch of years ago is professing you don't need all those people. So we've seen this movie before. So it's not, this is why it's so important to become a historian on these things, because you wanna be able to look at these things and say like for some folks, generations that are new, whether it's Gen Z or millennials, they're gonna be like, oh, this is the first time, but it's not. Like that's the beautiful thing about the world. There's a lot of what we'll see today is a some sort of iteration of something that's already happened. We're seeing that now again, with this. So yes, absolutely. I think you're going to see, but fundamentally I want to be clear, like it's not just, Hey, let's not hire a content writer ever again, because there are some things that will trip you up at chat GPT. Like if you're trying to get SEO and you're putting it into chat GPT, there are now systems that can flag that for AI creation, right? Which, so there's a lot, you're still going to need, again, I think the equation here is less humans. Absolutely. No question about it. I mean, we've seen it, in HR, I put a job description in there. It spits out a job description. I put it into another system to scramble it so it's not AI generated. And now I'm using that. Usually that took a recruiter about 30 minutes, 45 minutes. That's done in five minutes, right? So I think it's going to create efficiencies and absolutely the scale. I'm really excited. I actually just posted about it this weekend. There's this auto GPT. So call it AI 2.0 which is this autonomous agent that goes out and does tasks. I haven't seen it. I've tested it. Some of it is a bit fairy dust to a certain degree. Um, and if it could do what it says it could do, this, I think, is going to be even a wilder change than we see with the chat GPT stuff. Yeah, chat GPT can give you a content. It can give you a process. It can put together a, a plan. 
this can actually do all of that and then execute on that. And I talked about recruiting, right? Hey, go find me 15 software engineers based on this job description. Reach out to each one of them. See if they'd be interested in meeting with Susie. If they are, please email this email address. And of course, then the, the, the human comes into it and we interview them, right? That is game changing. Like think about that's going to be sales, marketing, content, all this sort of stuff. So there's so much going on in this space. And if, if auto GPT lives up to the hype that I currently see, that we're going to have all these digital autonomous agents out in the world. So what's going to happen is you're going to have all of this stuff happening and the ROI. It's like, you know, email marketing versus direct mail when it came out. It was the ROI was a lot better because it was cheaper. It was so much cheaper to do than direct mail, but they're still direct mail. And what happens now is direct mail is a differentiator because you're getting all these emails. And now when you get a package at home, you're like, oh, let me open this up. We have your attention now where before. So I think we're going to see sort of an evolution of these things. And we're going to bring humans back into the process to more to humanize it. So it's going to be a really interesting uh, next couple of years. Definitely. I think we've been playing around with auto GPT. And I think what stands out more than the fact that the technology is incredible, it's the fact that, you know, before it used to take years for iterations on a new bit of technology. Now we're seeing it in weeks. And I think that's what's incredibly mind blowing. But I don't want AI to hijack our chat. And I want to feed back to. Uh, of course it does. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want to go, you know, what is it that you know now? that I guess you wish you knew in the early parts of your HR career, right? What do you know now? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. I mean, I think we had years ago, the inclination that all the stuff we were doing and focusing on HR had business impact, but we never could really tell the story through data and analytics. And now we can, there's so much there's so much research and so much uh, uh, st studies and case studies and data now that show like, hey, if you do all these things in HR, if you create great leadership programs, if you focus on employee engagement, if you focus on employee performance, that actually has a direct business impact. And I think with the evolution of the company going from what I'll call tangible assets. So this is, you know, cars and furniture and materials to intangible, which is now people, IP, software. It is wholly driven by the human capital experience. And so for me, the learn was there is, you know, I don't, I shouldn't have to convince a CEO that this is a good program, but I want to make sure that whatever I'm doing, I'm connecting it to our business results. So instead of saying, hey, this is going to be a good people program for our employees, I'm going to say instead, actually, this is going to help us increase our revenue. Or if we do this, you know, to a certain degree, it connects to our, our bottom line as, as a company. We're going to increase productivity, all these sort of things. So with all the data that's out there now, it's great that we don't necessarily have to overall say, is the HR role important or the HR effort important, but even individually making sure that we're connecting these things to the business results of our individual companies is going to be super important. And that was something I learned over time. Now I want to come to Ella, the engineer, um, Anthony. So tell us, who who is Ella, the engineer? So Ella is a character I created. Um, so years ago, 
my my I have three kids, two girls and a boy, and uh, I notice a huge gap in the amount of women that were going into, particularly in this case, technology or software engineering. We're talking about probably ten or fifteen years ago. And I it just something that was itching. I read a report. Uh, I think it was a Gina Davis Institute report on this, and it was just I thought it was something specific to our company. I actually ran a report. Uh, of the company that I worked for at the time, we had thousands of engineers across the the world, across the globe, and I did you know I did a pivot table and I was looking at gender and I I thought I did something wrong with the pivot table, so I ran it again because there was just you know of of a thousand plus employees there were like a handful two or three that were women. It was just like it was so wrong in terms of the imbalance that I actually ran it a couple of, a couple of times because I thought I did something wrong. There was just too few women in this career. So that night I went home and my kids were were fairly, you know, my my oldest was probably 10 at the time. And I said, you know, they and she had an iPhone. We were big believers in giving tech to our kids early on. Um which for another reason may not have been the right decision, but it is what it is. Um the I asked her, I said, do you know what that phone is all about? Do you know how that operates? And she didn't have an idea. And it kind of just spawned. And I was like, you know what? Maybe what we need to do is get educate the 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 kids. You know, instead of us trying to identify women to hire, why don't we go earlier in the careers of these young girls? And media is such a powerful presence in the life of everyone, right? So you know, there were studies done. Uh, there was a show years ago, Ali McBeal, which had a female lead lawyer. And the amount of women that actually started going into law school went up by 20 or 30%. So media has a huge impact yeah. on our behaviors as a society. And I said, what if I can create a hero, a techie girl that saves the day uh, in comic book or cartoon format? Imagine the amount of impact that's going to have going forward. And thus, Ella, the engineer, was was born. I created this character. She's a coder. She's a technologist. Um, she has an arch nemesis called Glitch, because anytime something doesn't work, we say it's glitching. Yeah. So he's a digital mischief, and he'll go in and create chaos in her town and all the tech in her town, and they call her up to fix it. And you know, at the time, Barbie had made a couple of missteps with girls in coding. And so it was a perfect time to launch this. So we launched a, a bunch of comic books around this character, found a great partner in Deloitte Consulting, who has also helped us put together five or six more comics, a graphic novel. They put together videos. Deloitte has been such an incredible partner on this. Uh, and so it's a comic book series right now. You can go to the uh, Ella, the EllaProject.com. You can download the comics for free on PDF. And now we're starting to work with the Gina Davis Institute on pitching an animated series to to studio at some point. So it's been evolving over time, and hopefully, fingers crossed, a studio picks it up and and we get sort of the animation. Because eventually, what I want to do, my end goal is a movie. I think global movie presence will have a greater impact on the amount of girls going into, into STEM or tech. Um, and so that's our ultimate goal, but we, we're getting there through baby steps. Incredible. What was it like seeing your own kids reading, reading the book? It was, it was great. I mean, the, my own kids are, you know, the, the greatest treasure on earth is, is the feedback from your own kids because it's radically candid. Um, and so I love the feedback from them. So it was great to see them. They were contributing, you know, 
first draft of the comic book, they would look through and read and they'd actually, so they're all contributing producers on every comic book, on everything that we're doing. My oldest now, Nicolette, is is co-founder of the Ella Project and my my son and my daughter are also, you know, advisors. So anything that we do script-wise, they read, they provide feedback. So they've been involved in this since the very beginning. When I received a video of a mom reading it to her kid, that wasn't obviously my child. That was when I was like, oh, this is actually making an impact early on. And that was really rewarding to see and continues to give me the motivation to keep pushing because entertainment's not easy. <laughs> it's not an easy business and I know nothing about it. Um, and so I, I'm lucky to have people around me that that know know the business and support selfishly anthony anytime i meet someone who's a parent given i'm going to be a first-time parent in a couple of months time i'm using the opportunity to to get any words of wisdom so what's that one nugget of advice you'd share for a, a new parent to be uh, well congratulations i you know if you if you read the book by peter zion which is uh, all about demographics continuing to build and and have children are, are going to be increasingly important in this world. Um, but also, okay, if, if your decision is not to have a child, um, advice is we're all making it up. We're all making it up. Like there are plenty of books. You're going to read a ton of books. You're going to be nervous. Everyone is making it up as they go. And so don't be so nervous. Don't overread be natural. You're going to react. You're going to make mistakes. It's it's kind of the way it, it works. And, and you're going to be an imperfect parent and your kid is going to be absolutely fine. So, um, yeah, don't try to over engineer things. Just sort of be natural. And the only thing is just make sure you it's amazing. <laughs> Excuse me. It's amazing when you when you're not a parent and then all of a sudden you become a parent, how much you can love and yeah, you know, of course you you love your partner, whatever um, your relationship is. You always have that kind of love, but until this child comes out, you're never going to know how much you could potentially love something in this world. And that's it's it's the greatest thing in in the entire world, and it's the most challenging. Before we jump onto the quick fire round, Anthony, I have to ask you about your book. Uh, what made you take the crazy decision of writing a book? Who does that? <laughs> it's uh people with a lot of time on their hands so covid uh covid was um you know we couldn't really go out anywhere and so i started doing voice to text um on my phone of things that i was thinking about um and i there years ago my dad worked for the same company i redact the name of the company to save the innocent. Um, but he worked for the same company his entire life, started in the mailroom and eventually became controller in their accounting department, which is the connection to why I took accounting in college because my dad told me it would be a good thing. Um, and so he was at the end of his career required to reapply for his own job and forced into retirement. And I just felt like this, there's this unwritten contract between employees and employers that had existed for so many years. And again, if you're a historian, on the, a historian on these things, it was this agreement where it's like, hey, if you give me work, I'll give you money, but I'll also build a community. A lot of companies were community-based and they cared about the community and they cared about the people. And it wasn't a family. I never wanted a company to be a family, but it felt more than just this sort of transactional. Now, what has happened is because we became so very transactional in the 70s and 80s, 
the requirements from boards to CEOs were short-term gains. And so this is why you're seeing the proliferation of, of layoffs during this first half of the year, because we're all focused on short-term gains. That contract has eroded. That contract between employee and employers has eroded. And so I wanted to make a statement on that because I think what it, as I looked at and researched Gen Z, and we used actually the Suzy platform, which is a market research platform to research Gen Z and what they wanted, a lot of that contract, that original contract of like, hey, you know, if you care about me, I'll care about you is really what, you know, at the culmination of, of the research, what they wanted. And so these two worlds lined up perfectly. And I said, okay, I can make a statement on how I think the contract needs to change, but also provide all these companies advice for this next generation that's coming into the workforce. Because there was no book. I remember with millennials, then when they came in, there was no book. No one had an idea to say, hey, we were all surprised that this generation wanted something different than the previous generation. Um, and there's a lot of similarities. I want to be clear. There's a lot of similarities into the wants and needs of each generation, but there are very clear differences. And I wanted to capture that. So COVID, had a lot of time. I voiced a text. Um, had a great editor and published a book. And uh, yeah, it's uh, it's been it's been fun. Incredible achievement. Just on the new employee contract, what do you think the impact of remote and hybrid working has been on that contract? Right? Do, do you think you're know, just talking about <clears throat> transactional how that relationship used how transactional it used to be kind of you know, 20, 30 years ago? Do you think that's starting to creep in more now because of the whole remote hybrid or, or do you think it all is good? No, I think it's it's less hybrid and remote. I think it's more of the macroeconomic environment. So, you know, the pressures on and again, I don't I don't blame the CEOs at all. Their bonuses are based on their quarterly earnings because their investors are interested in and the investors are interested because the LPs, the limited partners are, in, you know, like so it's this whole chain of events that if we can say like, listen, if we commit to our employees over time, we'll create company value, but we're very short-term focused. So what has happened is I think it's more of the macroeconomic environment where it's saying, okay. And and I think because of some of that macroeconomic environment, the pendulum of leverage has shifted. So years ago, it was, it was employers, right? When I joined the workforce as a Gen Xer, take anything that you can. The employer has the power position. You do not. You know, if you don't want to do this, there'll be three other people behind you. Well, now, um, over the past couple of years, it's been very talent focused. Like, no, you you have three or four job offers. There's plenty of, uh, not enough people and plenty of jobs out there. And we're still seeing some of that. It's still very much a talent market, but it's shifting back to the employer now with all these reductions in force and these rips. So I think we're seeing a pendulum switch which is or or shift which is now given employers the opportunity to go hey maybe this remote thing doesn't work i think you know it depends on your company that's my answer but it also depends i think on your level as you're more experienced you may have more autonomy where maybe more junior employee can use more of that in-person training and guidance you have to be very intentional that's the key right so if you're in a virtual environment you have to make sure that you're constantly giving that employee feedback, that junior employee that's just starting with you, that may be just starting out in his or her career or their career, whereas maybe someone more experienced understands how this works and you can give them more autonomy. And I think it's and it's not only experience, it's also intelligence, like all these things need to be considered when thinking about, you know, whether someone should be in, in an office 
or remote. Um, but I think it's the, it, to me, I've always landed in the middle. I think it's a hybrid approach. I think, you know, bringing people in is very rewarding, that human connection. But I also find that sometimes when you bring people into an office, their heads down working, what really interaction is there if they're just sitting next to someone else and just working, you know, it's, you have to be more intentional about what these different offices, these different hybrid locations uh, are, what, what, you know, what you're using them for. Just want to ask about the the writing process, uh, Anthony. So I remember my book, uh, my first book came out last year, and I remember writing that was possibly one of the hardest things I did. I massively underestimated it. Um, you know, I think when my publisher said, "Can you get it done in six months?" I was like, "I can get it done in three. <laughs> Don't worry about it." You know, it took me a year yeah. in the end. But what surprised you about the writing process? And and you know, apart from obviously the Ella project, was this your first time? writing a book it was it was my first time um and on the other project we had much smarter writers that were building the 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 comic book episode so i was more of like an executive producer on those so thank goodness so this yeah this was my first time with actually writing now i've been doing blogging and other videos and other things so i'm not without opinion on certain things so i found it very easy to, you know, and again, I would do it voice to text um, and then review what I wrote. The hardest thing was, and, and you know, Steve Jobs talk, talks about minimalism. The, it, the hardest part was taking stuff out. Like, so what do I eliminate? Because every idea was a baby, right? It's like, no, like, this is a great idea. Like, we should keep it in here. So that was the hardest part. And having an editor in that process to basically go, well, I, I see the holistic view of what you're trying to say. And this doesn't, even though it's a great idea, let's table that. And what I found to be really helpful was it wasn't deleting that idea. It was tabling that idea for book number two, which I don't think I'll do ever again. Because <laughs> um, I, I found like the writing part, again, with the great editors, not super easy, but not super challenging to me was like, like what you saw in our, when the Zoom started here selling the book to me is the hardest part because I'm, I'm too humble. I'm like, why would people want to read my book? So, um, but yeah, I think it's, it's the elimination of things in a book. Um, it was the hardest part. All right. We're going to jump into the last section, Anthony, which is the quick fire. I'm going to throw a few questions at you. If you can give me a quick answer. That'd be great. Uh, uh, okay. You're the CPO at Suzy looking forward. What excites you? Yeah. I mean, AI. I mean, the impact of AI, not only on our business as a product um, and what that capability could do, but also internally. What concerns you? What's the, the biggest challenge you see for CPOs in general looking forward? I think it's it's balancing the business needs with with the people. And instead of focusing just on people, we need to really be focusing on people and performance. And I think that usually trips up a lot of CPOs. What's your favorite productivity hack? Uh, time boxing. All right, elaborate. How do you how do you use time boxing? So basically, put my whole calendar into uh, half hours and and locking up time, whether it's my calendar or putting things to do, and making sure that I have in there Slacks, emails, making sure I have all this mapped out in a time box. So it's basically you go through your your day per hour and then split it by every half hour and making sure that everything that i'm doing ties to one of my 
overall goals. And if it doesn't, why am I doing that? What's the benefit of doing that? So being really, really hyper strategic about my calendar and, and how I operate. Do you set personal goals? Not, uh, not explicitly. Um, you know, there, there are wants and desires that I have that I'll definitely write down, but I don't have, it's kind of, you know, there was a, I forget who it was. I think he was a, a sports figure that said that the punishment of setting a goal is hitting it. Oftentimes you can actually exceed the goal if you don't set it. So um, I, I kind of bring that more into my personal life. Like I kind of put energy into the universe. It's something that I want. Uh, and then if, if it answers back, I'll focus on it. Um, but not necessarily put too many goals together. Uh, waking up every morning is at my goal. age is, <laughs> is number one goal. Yeah. Um, favorite book or podcast or both? Uh, so I love Think Again by Adam Grant, one of my favorite authors. And I just love his position on, hey, if new data comes in or new ways of thinking come in, um, don't sort of put your heels in the sand. Like, think again. And I think it's a great, uh, it's great advice for, for everything. Best piece of advice someone's given you or you've given someone? So Artie Nathan, who ran HR for Wynn Resorts, said, always tie what you're doing to business. Always like figure out a way, even if it's, you know, not directly correlated, every effort, every breathing second, making sure that whatever you're doing, and if it doesn't tie to business, figure out how it does uh, and make sure that that's explicit. And I thought that was great, great advice. And the last one for you today, Anthony, is what are you most proud of? <clears throat> excuse me uh my kids i think you know all the things i do cpo at, at Susie, the book um ella the engineer hopefully maybe that'll live on past my my due date but really my legacy as a human being uh is my kids and making sure that they're equipped not only to be smart and bright and be successful, but also be good, good humans and, and have a positive impact on the world. And so for me, I'm, I'm most proud of them. And I feel like we've just scraped the surface and we could do another five episodes, but thank you very much for taking the time out and for jumping on the show. Thank you, Nelson. It's been fun. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to another brilliant episode of L&D Disrupt, the podcast that's powered by How Now. Our learning experience platform helps companies bring relevant learning and skills into the flow of work to make meaningful learning a part of everyday work. But don't just take our word for it. Here's what some of our customers have to say. And if you like what you hear and want to learn more about How Now, just use the link in the description to book a demo. As a loyal L&D Disrupt listener, we'll send you a swag pack containing a copy of the book Learning at Speed and some How Now merch once we've shown you around. And we needed somewhere to have a central home for all of the learning content that was be cr being created at Pace. And we also really wanted to, to, to support and modernise learning. So moving to that 70-2010 model, where learning is really integrated into the flow of work at the point of need. And we knew that HowNow would be the perfect platform to support with that modernised approach. And I was confident that HowNow was right for FitFlop because it passed the eyeball test at the Learning Technologies Conference, number one. Does it look like it's going to be user-friendly and people might actually want to use it? My previous companies, I'm used to using very clunky LMSs that don't do much to help with engagement. We've just launched How Now, actually, um, where I am at the moment with Lucid Group. And um, 
what we've focused on is the building of habits around learning. So trying to get people into healthy and regular habit of learning so that it becomes an everyday activity as opposed to something they have to take lots of time out. We're very time poor. The tools they've got, the information they need, is where they need it at the point. So integrating into Microsoft Teams as we use it or any other collaboration tool, making sure that any learning is accessible at their point of need. So um, where they can ask a search first question and then um, we can provide them the information they need straight away.